Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would illumine our minds, Lord, by your spirit and, and help us to look to your word, to look to you, to behold great and wondrous things such that we might be changed by them. For your glory, we pray. Amen. If you would uh, open your Bibles or your Bible apps to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. 1 Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give accounts to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, if you've not uh, grabbed a copy of the Connections today, I want to encourage you to do that, maybe even on your way out. There is a uh, pastoral statement uh, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage. I want to encourage you to read that, uh, that you, I pray, would be uh, uh, edified, uh, as you would know, our, our care as pastors for this congregation, and particularly on that issue. Um, if... Uh, if you have a copy, uh, let me encourage you to read it sometime today, but not during the sermon. Uh, I'd like your full attention, because I, I think recent events really raise an even bigger issue, and they begin to cause us to ask uh, this question. For the follower of Christ, how does one survive or even thrive in a culture that is increasingly cynical and perhaps even at times hostile to the very things they believe. It's no secret that as a nation, our views on, on family, on love, on gender, on sexuality, on tolerance, on God are changing and changing rapidly like no other time in history. And it seems like never before the Christian is being pressed on these issues. And 
And the one who trusts in the authority of God's word is being challenged in how to live in such a time as this. See, the scriptures speak to every one of those issues, but even more so to the issues underlying the current issues of our day, to the issues of ultimate reality, the issues of who God is and who we are and and what we believe and how we're called to live. The scriptures give us clarity and understanding in those things that then shape how we respond to a culture in our current day. And I think Christ followers find themselves at a crossroads in this time, wondering what does it look like to live in a post-Christian culture? Just consider with me some of the current events, some of the recent events, even over the past year, the, the Christian photographer in New Mexico who refused to photograph a wedding for a lesbian couple, or the baker in Oregon, the same, or the florist in Washington, or the cake artist in Colorado, or the pizzeria right next door in Indiana, or the t-shirt maker in Lexington, Kentucky, all who refused to, to affirm and work for an environment where uh, they were affirming same-sex relationships. And all being sued, harangued, maligned because of their Christian convictions. All incurring verbal abuse or social ostracization or even sometimes financial ruin as a result. See, if, if we know our history of Western civilization, then we know that that Christianity has held a favored spot for the past 1,700 years or so, since the Edict of Milan in the time of Constantine. It, It has been a shaping influence on culture in significant ways. We see this even if we look to architecture or art or music or literature or the like. We see the the shaping influence of Christianity upon our culture and thus how it has been uh, cherished in some some regards. But that has changed and is changing right before our very eyes and changing rapidly even over the last three or four decades. And so we have to ask as a Christian, how do I survive in this culture, this this current culture and this coming culture, a culture that has become distrusting and disparaging, even contemptuous of my Christian belief and conviction. How do I live in that kind of world? Friends, I think, I think that's the very question that the hearers of Peter's letter were asking. And it's the very question that he is seeking to answer, especially here in chapter 4. In so many ways, this passage in 1 Peter is more relevant now for the average Christian in the Western world than it has been for the past 1,700 years. And so we do well to listen and to ask, what does it look like to live according to God's will in such a time as this. That's what Peter's going to tell us in these brief 11 verses. And the first thing he tells us is it means we must think differently. 
We must think differently. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking is that, Peter? It's the same way that Christ thought. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, the link, the connection, that Christ thought this way, so now you arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. And it's important for you to take note of the therefore here, because it is significant in grasping not only the logical flow of thought for Peter, but even more so, the nature of ultimate reality. See, when we have a therefore in the scriptures, it is pointing to something ultimate, a truth that is significant, that then we begin to see the implications of. And that's what Peter is doing here. See, it therefore points us, tells us something about the nature of God or, or, or the, the nature of what we are to believe or the nature of Christ or the nature of humanity or the nature of sin or how we are to live in light of these things. See, the, 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 the ultimate reality here is significant Because if we were to understand how we think and how we live amidst a a culture that is shifting and changing and even declining, perhaps, then we need to understand that ultimate reality. And so Peter is saying, what I'm about to tell you about how to think, how to live, how to love is based on the nature of supreme, fundamental, final reality in the universe. And that has everything to say to us in the day-to-day existence of human life, in the, in the work-a-day world that we find ourselves in. When, when, when one of your friends or family members or neighbors watches you and, and you, engages you in conversation and begins to, to ask, why do you believe that? Why do you think that way? Why do you do that? They're asking, ultimately, a question of of ultimate supreme reality. They're asking, what moves you? What drives you? What do you believe that causes you to do that? And that's what Peter is showing us with that small little word that is significant in how this passage is put together. And the ultimate reality he points us to is this. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, in the body. And and that, therefore, is actually a conclusion of chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. It's the conclusion of that thought. And in a way, the the opening phrase that Christ suffered in the body is a a summary statement of what he's just said in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That truth, simple yet profound, Peter is saying that that the suffering Christ, the cross, has radically changed the way you think. It must radically change the way you think. See, understanding and believing in the atoning work of Christ, to To understand that and believe that means you will never think the same way again. You may believe that today and not even know how your thinking has changed, but it has and it should, Peter is telling us. The idea that Jesus Christ, 
the creator and sustainer of the universe. God incarnate, born in this world, sinless, perfect, the Lamb of God without blemish, died a horrific death on the cross for you in your place, taking the punishment you deserve for sin. And then being raised again on the third day, conquering sin and death forever. That reality, the suffering of Christ, the most stupendous of realities in all the world, that changes the way we think. We think differently when we believe that. You see, that truth is not simply a belief to be affirmed and then put on the shelf. It's not just, oh yeah, I checked that box, I believe that, I get that, that, that Jesus is God thing and he died for my sins. I, I get that, that's good, I checked that off. No, it, it, it radically has an effect on us. See, in light of that truth that Christ suffered unjustly for the redemption of undeserving sinners that we need to be reminded of regularly, daily, all the time. That truth, Peter says, in light of that, be prepared for unjust suffering. Have the mind of Christ. Be resolute like Christ if and when suffering comes. In fact, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's a military term. It it pictures a warrior soldier always prepared for action. No possibility in Peter's mind of, of a soldier who is unarmed. Maybe in our day, not his. Armed for action. Armed with the knowledge that Jesus suffered for you. Friends, that's more than just believing. It is thinking differently and it changes who you are and how you act. It changes how you respond to cynicism and derision because of your faith in Christ. Why would you arm yourselves with the same way of thinking? Peter tells us, for, because... Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? If you suffer for Christ's sake, then you have ceased from sin. You're no longer sinful. That's not what Peter has in mind. The the whoever here could either refer to Jesus or to the believer. If it refers to Jesus, that means that Jesus has ceased from sin in this way. Not that he sinned and stopped but that he conquered sin, that he's finished with sin. Done. If it refers to the believer, which is what I think Peter has in mind, then it means that sin no longer has dominion over you. We, we, just, we just said it in the Heidelberg Catechism, right? That you have been set free from the tyranny of the devil. Beautiful phrase. Set free from the tyranny of sin. It means that though sin remains, it doesn't reign. Its power has been severed, broken. So to think like Christ when it comes to unjust suffering 
It shows our allegiance to him. It shows that we are aligned with him, that we identify with our suffering Savior. It shows that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. And that changes how we live. So a different way of thinking that leads to a different way of living. To arm ourselves with the same way of thinking may even move us to go into a place that is hostile to Christianity. I see that with so many of our younger missionaries. They they understand the gospel and grasp it and love it and are moved by it to set themselves in harm's way for the sake of Christ that the nations might hear of his saving grace and work on the cross. That's glorious. And that's, that's right. That's the, the changed way of thinking that leads to a changed way of living. So how does the follower of Christ survive in a culture that is increasingly cynical and maybe even hostile? We must think differently. But secondly, we must live differently. That's the point that Peter sets before us in verses 2 through 6. So as to, that is for the purpose of, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That is for the rest of your days on this earth, you are to live in a radically different manner. No longer for the human passions, that is the human desires, epithumia, it means Inordinate desires, over-desires is the the idea that, that Peter has. Desires that lead to your demise ultimately because they are out of balance and they are excessive. No longer live for those, but now live for the will of God. For for the time has passed for living that way, like the Gentiles did. You you used to live that way, Peter's saying. You were about those desires, self-indulgence and self-absorption. That's who you were. But now you've come to see that Christ suffered for you and believe in what he has accomplished for you. So now you live differently. See, the contrast Peter's making is the difference between life before Christ, apart from Christ, and life with Christ, in Christ, by faith in Jesus. See, Trusting in him not only alters the mind, it changes the way we live. No longer do we live according to our base, self-absorbed, sinful desires. But we now live for the will of God. That's the reality of conversion. A radical change of heart and mind and life. I kind of like the way John Stott uh, talks about conversion when he, when he describes uh, the life of every Christian as being comprised of having a two-volume biography. I think that's right. Every Christian, two-volume biography. The first volume is, is that life where you lived according to those sinful desires, where you lived for yourself apart from him. But at that point where you come to faith and you trust in Christ in his perfect atoning work on the cross for you 
and for your sin. At that point now, chapter 2, volume 2 is being written. First chapter, first page. And from that point forward, the life that you live in Christ. That's the picture, and it's right. For, for some of you, that first volume is short. It's just a little booklet because you were placed in a gospel-loving home and you saw the gospel lived out and you came to faith as a young child and you heard the gospel and you trusted and you believed. And now that second volume is being written page after page after page, day after day. But for others of you, for some of you like me, that first volume is like a James Michener novel. But it's, it's not fiction. It's real. And it, it accounts your life apart from Christ, a life of rebellion and harm and destruction. But on that day when you come to faith in Christ, that new volume is being written. For some of you in this place on this day, there is no volume two. There's just volume one. And God is calling you this day to see the suffering Savior who died on the cross for you. For you. That in so seeing, by His grace, that first page of volume two is written on this very day. That's what Peter has in mind. It is the reality of conversion, radical way of thinking, radical way of living. He was, he was talking just a few verses ago at the end of chapter 3 about baptism, how baptism saves you. And what he's doing there is anchoring baptism to, to the death and resurrection of Christ. And, and he's talking about this new life that is yours. And so it's natural for him to talk about the implications now in chapter 4 and to show us what real conversion means, what it looks like to know Christ and to follow him and to be changed by virtue of that. Friends, I, I remember explicitly in my own life as an adult coming to faith in Christ. I remember that life apart from him. I can still read some of those pages pretty clearly. And, and the radical change that happened and 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 how a new life was 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 coming into existence if you will and how how god had had severed that bond to to the old way to the past and even the desires for those things and the things i cared about up until that point were no longer important to me and the things that i never cared about god's word and prayer and fellowship of believers and worship of a holy God, those things became the most important thing in the world. And, and, and guess what happened to those friendships that I had up until that point? For some, I had a chance to talk about what God was doing, what Christ was doing, what he had done to save me. And they were drawn in. And for others, they were shocked and surprised and actually not very happy with my new way of life. Maybe you know that same reality. Maybe they began to to jab you or to malign you or even to scorn you. That's what Peter says happens when you come to faith. 
when you trust in Christ, when you live for these things and you no longer live according to the flood of debauchery that characterized the pagans, those who did not know Christ. Well, what does that, what does that mean when it comes to fighting sin and temptation? How do we pursue this life, this, this changed life, this new life, a, a life lived differently in Christ? Well, it, it means that the greatest motivation to do that is to look to Jesus, the very Son of God who endured temptation, who lived for the will of God, and who remained faithful to the very end, even suffering for you. See, there's no greater motivation to living a radically transformed life than that and that truth. And do you know what happens to those who malign you, who have a disdain for the gospel, who scorn you? They either come to faith, that happens, praise God, or one day they give an account, Peter tells us, to the one who will judge the living and the dead. That's Jesus himself. And in fact, in verse 6, Peter says, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. That is, to those who are now dead. They were alive. The gospel was preached to them, but they're now dead. But they heard the gospel when they were alive, and they believed, and they lived in the Spirit. And they're evidence of those who've been changed and who have lived radically different lives now in the Spirit. No longer marked by inordinate desires, but now lives marked by, marked by the fruit of the Spirit, living for the very will of God. So if the Christian is going to live in a skeptical and cynical world, we think differently, we must live differently, and lastly, we must love differently. The, the, the text shifts here. Peter, Peter goes from talking about living among unbelievers in the world to now what does it look like to live among believers in the church and and it shifts for this reason because Peter's making this point if you want to live if you want to make it as a Christian in in a cynical world then then you need the church that's what Peter's saying you need the church you need to learn to love differently Rather than loving yourself, which is what you've done up until that point of conversion, you now learn to love selflessly, to love others, to serve them. You learn to love in a radically distinct way from the world you came out of. That's Peter's point. And he, and he, he, he expounds on that. It means you'll, be, you'll live self-controlled, sober-minded, prayerful lives. That is, lives free from excess that are well-balanced, clear-headed, and, and marked by, by a saneness because you understand the realities that matter, who God is, who you are, what Christ has done, and what it means to live for him. See, those things are the definition, biblical definition of sanity in a broken world. It's the same word Paul uses here to speak of, of the demoniac, the man possessed by demons. And when Jesus uh, cast out the demons, it, it says he was, he was clothed and in his right mind. He was sane because he'd been saved. Not only is, is this life 
of love now marked by, by a self-controlled, sober-minded prayer. It is marked by forgiving love, a genuine regard for the well-being of others. And specifically with an attitude toward the failures of others. Maybe you know those failures well. Maybe people have disappointed you. Maybe they have, they have rejected you in some way, even within the life of the church. And, and, and it says here that the way you respond is, is with grace and mercy and kindness. For love covers over a multitude of sin. That's forgiving love. Thirdly, it's marked by genuine hospitality, not begrudgingly, not complaining, but joyful, cheerful hospitality, opening your home to others, to strangers, that they might come in, that you might love them and serve them and show them how the gospel is at work in your life, in your family. That's a beautiful picture of hospitality. And lastly, this this radical way of love is marked by gracious, selfless service. Using your gifts, Peter says. He categorizes the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. And every believer, every Christian called to Christ, faith in Christ, everyone is given a gift for the building up of the body of Christ, for the edifying of the church. And you're called to use those gifts graciously, serving one another. And, and, and the, the language here is that, that you have been entrusted with that gift. It's a trust given to you that you would, you would exercise it well for the benefit of the church. All of this, Peter says, is done with the end in mind. The end of all things is near, he says. It is, it is imminent. That is the, the very coming of Christ. Could be at any moment of any day. And that we live it with that reality in mind as if Jesus might return this very moment. And, and if you believe that, then you live a genuinely authentic life. You, you live a life that's marked by honesty and sincerity and integrity. You, you, don't, you don't play act your way through faith or go through the motions because you really believe that Jesus came and died for you and then he will come again. And because you love him and you want to follow him, you live as if he might come this very moment. That's what, that's what it is to love in a radically different way. Why? Peter tells us one purpose. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's why. See, when we love differently, we glorify Christ. We bear witness to the ultimate of realities that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross in the body once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous so that we might be radically changed in how we think and changed in how we live and changed in how we love. This is what it means to live for the will of God, even in such a time as this. And when we do so, we say with Peter, to him belong glory and dominion 
forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that to you belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, for those in our midst, even this day, perhaps where that first page of volume two is being written, we pray, Lord, that they would see clearly the glorious work of Christ on the cross for them, that their sins are forgiven by your undeserving kindness and grace bestowed upon upon us. And for those of us who know that and believe it, Father, may we be marked by it significantly now as we go and live for your glory. Amen.